It's Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. News from Russia, Vladimir Putin has detained another, let us call her a dissident, her crime, making a donation of about $51 to a Ukrainian charity. This dual American-Russian citizen is reported on by NBC's Today Show. This morning, another American citizen is in custody in Russia. Ksenia Karolina, a 33-year-old ballerina who lived in Los Angeles, is a Russian-American dual national. She was detained on suspicion of treason for allegedly donating money to support Ukraine. Karolina's example might break through in a way that not even Erin Gerskovich and Brittany Griner did because Karolina is hot. Repeat, hot. You don't think it matters? Name any Russian detainee since Shultzenitsyn. Pussy Riot, that's about it. Were they hot? I don't know, they might have been, I don't really remember, but Pussy Riot, memorable branding, it counts. I personally, and I'm a political sophisticate here, I would have guessed that Alexei Navalny's death would fail to galvanize the pro-Putin slice of the Republican Party. My guess would be true, but I wouldn't have guessed that an unchastened Donald Trump would actually identify himself as the persecuted American version of Navalny. Although, you know, turning it into the personal is a particular skill of the ex and plausibly future president. We don't know what killed Navalny, if it was by design or just the accrual of hardships in the Russian prison system. A clue will be, look for this, in the upcoming days, if Putin and his circle plays totally dumb about how he died The answer is they meant to murder him. But if theories begin to emerge from within Russia that this was all very purposeful and by design, that would be an indication that it was really accidental. I wish any of this would dislodge even one vote holding up the House funding the arming of Ukrainians, but that does not seem likely. A pretty ballerina, brave dissidents, millions of sovereign people, In their own country, none of that seems to matter. Vladimir Putin always seems to get his way. And the idea that there would be enough collective effort to stop him is looking more and more like false hope every day. On the show today, let us keep it on the Russian front in the spiel, analyzing Putin's odd bedfellows, including grocery store enthusiasts among them. But first, Charles Duhigg is a podcaster, so I like him already. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. I could be convinced that that's acceptable. He is the author of the bestseller, The Power of Habit. And he is out with a new book, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. I establish one with Charles Duhigg up next. Charles Duhigg is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, investigative, depending on how you pronounce things. I know the New Yorker where he writes would use umlauts to direct us to the correct pronunciation. He once made a million dollars because he couldn't stop eating the cookie. Well, that was, I think, the subtext of his best-selling book, The Power of Habit. He is out with a new one that's right in my wheelhouse, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. Mr. Duhigg, welcome to The Gist. Mr. Pesca, thank you for having me. This is such a treat. So does it start, the book does start 
we meet characters. You're a great journalist. You know that you have to tell these stories through characters. Does it start for you when you meet this CIA recruiter, this FBI investigator and say, oh, there's a story there? Or was it the opposite? You had this idea and you had to find the character to tell it through. I, I actually had the idea first. And the reason why is because it really started with me screwing up. <laughs> so like, I just, you know, I... I hit this age where I realized that I was having problems connecting with the people that it mattered to me most. And usually it was because of conversations. And and for me, it really came home when I fell into this pattern with my wife where I would come home from work and like after a long day and I would, you know, complain about my boss or my coworkers. And she very reasonably would listen to me and then suggest a solution. Like, yeah. why don't you take your boss to lunch? And then we, you can get to know each other. And I, instead of hearing what she was saying, which is, of course, I want to help you. What I would hear is I'm I'm not listening to you, and I would get even more upset. I'd say like I don't I don't want you to solve my problem. I want you to be on my side and empathize and like be outraged on my behalf. And I and and then she would get upset because I was acting irrationally. And and this happens I think in every relationship, right, where people are kind of having different conversations. And so I started calling up these researchers and asking them like, what's going on here? And they said, oh. We're glad you called because we're actually living through this golden age of I've been waiting for your call, I've been waiting, Mr. Duhigg. <laughs> waiting for this telephone call. Oh, you read my papers. And I'm like, no, I didn't actually read the papers. But, but they were like, we're, in, we're, we're living through this golden age of understanding communication for really the first time because of advances in data collection and neural imaging. And they said, one of the main things we've learned is we tend to think of a discussion as being about one thing. But actually, most discussions are made up of multiple different kinds of conversations. And like most of them fall into one of three buckets, right? There's these practical conversations where we like make plans or solve problems. There's emotional conversations where I don't want you to solve my problem. I just want you to understand how I feel. And there's social conversations about how we relate to each other and we relate to society. And they said, and the thing we're, we've learned is if you're not having the same kind of conversation at the same moment, you can't really hear each other. Right. So when I was coming home from work, I was having an emotional conversation and my wife was having a practical conversation. And so it was like two ships passing in the night. Right. So a couple things. One, we're starting to understand conversations for the first time. I call bullshit on that. We'll get back to that. <laughs> Two, tell me if this is like 1990s thinking, but it does. It did seem true to me. And I was always told that the dynamic between you and your wife plays out in many, many relationships, but the genders are usually switched. Yes, it is yes, the oftentimes. male thing to say, well, do this and this and this, and then you'll solve your problem. And the female thing to say, I kind of just want to vent and be heard. Yeah. Yeah. And and by the way, I do plenty of the uh of the other way, right? Where like yeah. this brings a problem to me and I'm like, what you want to do is <laughs> right. Because the problem from her perspective, or the person who is trying to solve the problem, which is I think more in my case, though it does flow the other way, is that it's not just like, oh, I've given you the wrong advice or I haven't addressed your problem. It's now you're now the person who is there in problem solver mode feels like aggrieved or not listened to or what the hell yeah. their time was wasted, kind of put upon to, to have this, to have the rug pulled out from under him as what your first key point is. What was this conversation really about? It's yeah. unfair to both participants if they don't put their finger on that. Both people are making a good faith effort to try and connect with each other. But the thing is, if so when we have these, these three kinds of conversations, it actually uses different parts of our brains, right? The practical conversation happens in the prefrontal cortex, right behind your forehead. The emotional conversation really happens in the deep brain, your amygdala and other parts of, of your emotion, emotional brain. And so 
the way that communication works is that our brains become more and more aligned. But if we're using different parts of our brains, we can't become aligned. And so the key is honestly just sometimes to ask. Like now when we start, when I come home complaining, Liz will actually ask me like, do you want me to help you solve this problem or, or do you just need to vent and you just want me to listen to you? Right. And I actually appreciate it. That is good advice for someone in a longstanding relationship like you guys are. But it is hard to ask literally the first question. And, and my listeners should know the three conversations are one, what's this really about? Two, how do we feel? And then three, and there's kind of a synthesis, or you can't get to three until you figure out the first two, is who are we? Okay. That's well, right. Well, and those, well, those represent yeah. the practical, the emotional, and the social. So the thing is, if you're engaged in a conversation with someone you don't know, or you're starting a conversation, what's this really about seems like the kind of thing that it's a little dicey to explicitly ask that early on. There are ways to get at that if you know that that's a thing that needs to be addressed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like if you're if you're in a meeting, it's very easy to say, look, we gathered here to talk about the budget. We got to figure out what it is. Or for my wife to ask me, do you want me to listen or give you advice? But most interactions we have would be super weird if I if we started a conversation by saying, what do you want out of this conversation? What's your goal, right? The other person would be suspicious of us. But there's a way yeah. around this. And, and what it and within psychology, it's referred to as a quiet negotiation that happens at the start of every conversation. Where what's happening is each of us are making conducting these little experiments. And we actually do this unconsciously. So at the beginning of a conversation, we might interrupt each other to see if interrupting is okay. Or we might right, tell right. a joke to see if the other person laughs. Or if they tell a joke, we might decide to laugh or we we want to signal this is a signal conver serious conversation. There's no laughter here. And most importantly, the way the thing that we can do that's most helpful to figuring out what's going on in this conversation is to ask what's known as a deep question. Mm -hmm. And a deep question is something that asks the other person about their values or their beliefs or their experiences, which can sound kind of intimidating, but it's actually really simple because most deep questions don't appear deep. Like if you meet someone and you say, like, what do you do for a living? And they say, oh, I'm a lawyer. Then a deep question would be to say, oh, what made you decide to go to law school? Or what do you love about practicing the law? Right? Both of those are questions that invite the other person to tell me something meaningful about them. And it's going to tell me whether they're in a practical mindset or an emotional mindset or a social mindset. I'm going to know what they want out of this conversation based on how they respond to a deep question. And then I'll answer that question myself. Even if they don't ask it back, it's very natural to say, oh, you know, I went to medical school because I saw my dad like, you know, uh, get sick. Right. It's a way for us to connect. Yeah. And the FBI profiler guy who you have early in the book just kind of unlocks and opens these much deeper states by doing just that, asking questions and relating it to his own experience and making everyone feel cliche words safe to tell things to him that they normally wouldn't in the setting in, in a more formal setting. That's so exactly right. What is the answer? Okay. A deep question is, so why'd you want to become a lawyer? What's an answer that would indicate what the person's, um, sure. what they're getting from the conversation? Give me two types of answers and how that would indicate they're getting one thing or another thing. So let's say you ask that, why, why'd you decide to go to law school? And, and the same person might answer that question in two different ways, depending on their mindset. What at some points they might say, you know, I wanted a steady job and I knew that if I had a law degree, I'd always have work. Okay. That person's in a practical mindset, Right. They, like if we, the next topic we bring up, if it's something about like, where'd you go on vacation or, you know, how do you invest or something like that? They're going to be into it. They're in a practical mindset. Now, let's say you ask that same question. They say, oh, actually, you know, I saw my uncle get arrested when I was a kid and I thought it was completely unfair. 
and and I want to I wanted to fight for the for the underdog. Mm-hmm. Then in that case, they're in an emotional mindset, they, or maybe even a social mindset if they're if they're talking about policing and the issues around policing. And and it's easy for us to match them. And within psychology, this is known as the matching principle. And what the matching principle says is we need to be having the same kind of conversation at the same time in order to hear each other and connect with each other, which means I either need to match you or I need to invite you to match me. And so the first thing to do is ask this deep question because that tells me what kind of mindset you're in. It gives me a hint. Yeah. So let's, I'm, I'm concocting a scenario. Let's say you and I, or me and the lawyer are waiting for rental cars. And it's one of these situations on Thanksgiving Eve, and they seem to have run out of cars and, um, everyone's agitated. And, you know, they say to me, maybe we're trying to work out solutions. Hey, do you want to, you want to, carpool if there's only one car, something like this. And I said, why did you become a, uh, it turns out the person's a lawyer. Why did you become a lawyer? Aren't they, are you saying if what they really want out of the situation is just to vent their frustration at the lack of a rental car, they might say the injustice of the world. But if what they want out of the situation is to actually get a rental car, they might say, because practically it would make me money. Like there, what, what is the, they, they that, very that well might could. be the true answer for both. Are you saying that if the emotional part of their brain is activated, they're more likely to hit on the emotional answer? That's so exactly. it gives you a clue. So here, here's an easy, an easier way of thinking about it. Like, let's say you're, you're waiting for that car, right? Yeah. And like, you're probably going to be talking about car rentals and stuff like that instead of necessarily about your careers. Yeah. But if you say like, if you say like, man, is this going to screw up your vacation? And they say something like, yeah, the thing is, like, I got to get to my mom's and then I have to get to my stepdad's and I've only got six hours. Okay, they're talking about planning, right? Like, he and I, that person and I can start coming up with like solutions together. But if they say, like, yeah, you know, I made this reservation weeks ago and this company always screws me over and like everyone who works here is a moron, then I know like they're not looking for a solution. They're looking to vent. Right. But it's because right. I asked that deep question, because I asked them, you know, what basically, what do you make of this? I, I want you to tell me how you feel about your life rather than the facts of your life are going to tell me like where they're coming at this, what they need in order to, to have this conversation. And it might be that I say, you know what? You're right. They are such jerks. Like, I hate this company. That being said, I got to figure out how to solve this problem. Like, w- what do you think we should do? Right. So we've had a little bit of emotional exchange. Now I'm trying to nudge it to a practical discussion. So and, you and match probably- them, right. You match them where they are. You engage that part of their brain that was working on either the practical or emotional And then side, invite and then them try- to match yes. me. Gotcha. And, and think about how, like, the reason why this is powerful is because there's nothing worse than, than trying to talk to someone and you bring something up and they, they just go on a completely different tangent, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like it makes you feel like a, a, a like a dummy if you're like, I hate this company, they're such jerks. And they're like, yeah, I guess, but um, I'm trying to figure out like, should I take the cab to like to like Des Moines or somewhere else? Like you're not connecting with each other. Whereas when I say something and the other person indicates that they've heard me, they prove to me that they that they're listening, even just with like a follow-up question or even just acknowledging what I said, then it feels like I've been heard and it makes me want to listen to them in return. Yeah. You know where I kept thinking of in a jury room that this stuff would come this this stuff would come in handy if you were the foreman of a jury or a member of the jury i don't know why i kept thinking about that why i think, think that's cuz the second chapter is about a jury room <laughs> 
and and you're a very wise man. I think I think you think like I do, which means you think as a genius. <laughs> no, I asked you the question. Why do you think I was doing that? Because I was engaged in your techniques, by the way. Oh, I ahead. love it. I love it. You're very good. You're very good. At, see, you're so you're so subtle at it. I hardly even noticed. Yeah, but I'm also so egotistical. I had to point it out. See, see what I was doing there. I was using your thing. <laughs> right, but you could have answered. You thought of it because uh, you have the need to connect with me because I wrote a chapter. Yeah, that's true. Wow. That's it's true. a very simple rule, but the permutations are uh, fascinating. But anyway, take me through the jury room. What does that tell us? Yeah. So th- this. So there's only been about five um, trials in history in the U- United States where they videotaped or recorded what happened in the jury room. It's usually yeah. considered completely private. And so I found the tapes of one of these trials. Um, this guy Leroy Reed was on trial. He was an ex-con who had been caught carrying a gun. He had bought it legally, but it's illegal in in Milwaukee to own a gun if you're an ex-con. And it's clear that, but, like, but he, not if you're 17, by the way. Anyway, yeah, right, right. Yeah, and it's yeah, clear yeah. that, like, this guy, like, he never, he never actually touched the gun. He just put it in his closet. He like, so it's clear that this guy shouldn't go to jail to some people, but but some jurors want him to go to jail. And so there's this guy in the in the jury room who's a super communicator, and and, and we should talk a little bit about what super communicators are because they're kind of anyone can become a super communicator. They're people who think a little bit more about how to connect with others and how conversations work. And this guy, he starts to realize as he asks, he starts asking the, the jury all these questions, little questions like, oh, what'd you make of that? Or like, oh, did you think that was fair? Or hey, have you ever been, you know, you, have you ever gotten in trouble with the law? Stuff like that. And what he notices is that half the room want to talk about justice. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an emotional conversation, right? That's that's not a practical conversation, or it might be a social conversation, but it's it's a conversation about ideas and sort right. of it's concept. abstract and yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and it touches the, uh, on values a lot too. The other half of the room, all they care about is law and order. And for them, this guy broke the law, and whether he meant to or not, it doesn't matter. If you don't preserve law and order, then society becomes anarchy. And he realizes halfway through this conversation, these two groups can't hear each other. They think they're talking to each other, they keep talking to each other, and yet neither of them are hearing what the other side is saying. And so we have to we have to teach them how to hear each other by engaging them in either a social mindset or an emotional mindset or a practical mindset in a way that others can understand what they're saying. And he ends up he ends up bringing everyone together and they set the guy free. Hmm. Which was uh they set the guy free. So the law and order people were the ones who were convinced to the justice side. I mean, the justice yeah, people could so, have, I guess, thought he was guilty too. But that that's how I assume it w- uh, would play well, out. Well, it's interesting. So what happened is the justice arguments did not work on the law and order people. No matter how eloquently they were made, it doesn't matter. It doesn't match how they see the world. So yeah. this guy, John Bully, the super communicator, what he does is he says, look, I understand that you care about law and order. If we set this guy free, we're sending a message to the DA, stop bringing us these stupid cases. Instead, go find the murderers and the rapists and the kidnappers. Like, Don't waste our time on something like a guy who bought a gun that he never actually touched. Yeah. And so that appealed to the law and order folks, but he had to understand how they saw the world. He had to ask some questions. And this is one of the things that we know that consistent super communicators do. They ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person. Right. That's the process of how to unlock that code. But just tell me, is there something about the mindset of the law and order people that is rigid and maybe applies to other aspects of their life? And there, where whereas the justice people are more likely to be persuaded. I mean, part of good communicating is maybe to identify people who can be persuaded 
more easily and people can't. Well, I, I, I mean, what the, what the research tells us is that no, that everyone is, is essentially sort of equally persuadable, mm-hmm. um, regardless of, of how they come at, at a question like this. And, and you can see that in the election right now, right? Like, yeah, I wanted to talk about the election in a sentence. One of the candidates is definitely a law and order candidate. And one of the candidates is leaning more towards justice. Right. And I wouldn't say one group or the other is more persuadable. What I would say is they're speaking different languages. They are. Right. If 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 a Biden supporter goes to a Trump supporter and says, let me tell you all the reasons I'm voting for Biden, it's not going to change their mind. Instead, of what you have to do is you have to say, tell me why you're voting for Trump. Explain to me why this guy is so important to you. And once I understand what you're saying, how you see the world, then I might understand how to make some arguments that appeal to you. But if I just tell you why I'm pro-justice and Biden's great for justice, it's not going to do anything. Yeah. So do you know about the uh, Jonathan Hates, The Righteous Mind? Have you read yeah. it? So it's really interesting. And I don't know if I totally believe it, but it's a great thought experiment about how conservatives in general have three main principles and liberals in general have six main principles. And he may be wrong about that. He may have gotten one of the principles wrong or misdescribed it. But what your book in in conversation with his book tells me is that if you think that that's true, that there is a certain mindset with different principles, just try to think about what their principles are. Use your techniques or the super communicator techniques to unlock their principles or get at their principles in a way they feel heard. And that is one technique to bridge the divide. That's exactly right. And it's self-serving. It's not necessarily just for the good of humanity. It's a way to convince people to do your bidding. Or just to listen to you. So, So the other interesting thing that happens in those conversations, conversations where there's a little bit of disagreement or conflict, is all of us have this natural suspicion that the other person is not listening to us, but is simply waiting their turn to speak. And so in order to overcome that, we have to prove that we're listening. And there's actually a technique for this that they teach at like Harvard Business School and law school and Stanford. It's called looping for understanding. And it's very yes. simple. They even teach it at uh, <laughs> business schools that are easy to get into. But yeah, I know you that's went true. to Harvard. So what, what would you know about some lesser law school? <laughs> but they teach it everywhere, right? It's a good principle for all of us. And, and there's three steps to looping for understanding. First, ask a question, preferably a deep question if you can. Second, when the person replies, Repeat back in your own words what you just heard them say. Prove to them that you heard them and you've processed it. And then step number three, and this is the one everyone always forgets, is ask if you got it right. Yeah. And the reason why this is so powerful, particularly if we're if you're Trump and I'm Biden or vice versa and we're arguing with each other, is once I ask you that deep question and I get it how you see the world, I prove to you that I'm listening and then I ask your permission to basically acknowledge that I heard what you said. And it's hardwired into our brains. That other person will then become more willing to listen to you. Yeah. I've learned it as the Lara technique. Listen, affirm, respond, and ask questions. Have you heard that framing of it? No, I haven't, but I love it. Yeah. Listen, affirm, respond, ask questions. I recently used it. I did a uh, series on DEI and I found it while I was researching some DEI principles and I used it on a DEI trainer and he didn't realize I was using it, but it worked. It worked for a great conversation. At some point I was going to say, you know, I've been using Lara on you. And then I've decided not to even say it. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's, I mean, cause the thing is that I think the other thing that super communicators realize, and again, any of us can become a super communicator is they realize that in many ways, the goal of the conversation is not to convince the other person of anything. The goal of the conversation is to understand mm-hmm. the other person and help right. them understand you. So if you and I have a conversation and we disagree about politics or race or religion or anything, and we both walk away 
still disagreeing and thinking that the other person sees the world all wrong, but understanding how the other person sees the world, then that conversation yes. has been a success. And that that makes it so much easier to go into a conversation because your job isn't to like testify and witness and and you know convince them that they're wrong, which is almost impossible. It's just to understand what they say. And ah, the dreaded fade out, indicating that Mr. Duhigg and I talked beyond this point in the interview. We didn't just lower our own voices of our own volition. And in fact, what happened is we developed into super communicators of our own. You know who doesn't get the fade out? You know who gets to hear the entire conversation, the super bit of communication? It's Pesca Plus subscribers, that's who. Each week, subscribers get at least one extended interview, or in this four-day week, at least two extended interviews, and sometimes opportunities to participate in fun stuff like Trivia Night, more of which to come. Please consider becoming a Pesca Plus subscriber. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and check it out. And now the spiel. The year is 1989, 35 years ago to the day. And me, a 17-year-old Mike Pesca, is assessing global events. The Cold War is showing the slightest of Glasnostian thaw. We're just dealing with the end of the tenure of Ronald Reagan. The first Bush is there, or as we just called him, Bush. About a week ago, the last of the Soviet troops were withdrawn from Afghanistan, thus ending that recurring and soon-to-be-repeated folly. Now, if you had told me, Mike, I've got a crystal ball, and through this crystal ball, we're going to tell you one thing about U.S.-Russian relations in the year 2024, 35 years in the future, and here is that thing. Russia will continue to be a great foe of the United States. Well, that part wouldn't surprise me, except for one exception. Okay, I'm listening. A radical slice of one of the two American political parties will venerate and make excuses for the Russian government. I would be, I think, told that. I would be certain that the Democrats had failed to contain their instincts of Stalinism and Stalin excuses within their ranks. And it would disappoint me. Obviously, Ronald Reagan and conservatism had failed. The Soviets were at it again, and they somehow had reconvinced the Pinkos that they weren't that bad. Oh, Mike. Oh, Mike. No, no, it's a special kind of crystal ball. There's a littler, littler crystal ball within this crystal ball. It's like a uh, Russian nesting crystal ball. Okay, so I'm going to tell you this Reagan won, communism fell. That's another piece of your information that you have to go on. What do you think then? Well, all right. Then I would conclude, so maybe Russia reformed itself. Maybe Russia flourished. I think I would guess that Russia was perhaps something like Japan. And in America, former enemy, those old guard war hawks just couldn't let go. But it would probably, I would guess that it was the progressives who would see Russia as a worthy partner to be welcomed into the international community for mutual benefit. That'd be my guess. Well, Mike, 1989, Mike, there is an even smaller, really a crystal pebble inside the second crystal ball. And this one says, no, Mike, we've got news for you. Actually, the new Russians are 
almost as bad as the old Russians. They don't use gulags, but they rely on targeted detentions and killings, plus they're invading U.S. allies, and they have a massive Olympics doping program. All right, that would be it. I'd be stuck, and I would say something like, why Why are you even laying this on me? I'm, I guess I would speak like it was the 60s or something, but I might think, oh my God, come on, I, I can't concentrate on this. Batman just came out. I'm probably thinking they'll never make another one of those. Or I'd be thinking, you know, the top two TV shows in America are a tie between Roseanne and Cosby. And those two icons are unassailable, I'd be thinking. But given the facts, <laughs> I don't think those, you know, crystal balls worth of facts, I don't think there's any way I could understand or predict what was going on. It would make no sense to me. It wouldn't even make sense to Strobe Talbot or another Russia expert of the time. But what neither I nor Strobe could have anticipated was this phenomenon. And this is Russian wine. It's from Crimea, which not only has the warm water naval base, but also is the source of most of the grapes. The still dictatorial, still oppressive, still dissident killing, still expansionist Russian state would not change. What would change is that guy, Tucker Carlson. I wouldn't know what he was, but I couldn't understand what he was. That that guy would have appeal, lots of appeal. That that guy would be a radical right-wing, right-wing fan who had recently gotten done hosting the most watched news program in the United States of America. It is just so bizarre. And I know people today will tell you, oh, there's always been strongman worship faction within the right, and they'll say Pat Buchanan or some strain of John Birchism. No, 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 no. It would have been unanticipatable. And there are a few lessons thinking back and knowing that we could never have foreseen this. One, this one's Tucker Carlson specific. His appeal is not ideological. In fact, I think most commentators' appeal aren't ideological. There is no ideology really to Tucker. It's personal. It's conspiratorial. Conspiratorial theorizing actually goes with the person. Look, I, I do not think there is anything that he currently holds on to that he couldn't pull a 180 on that would so disappoint his audience that they wouldn't stay with him. Anything. Guns, specific Democrats, race. I do not think that Tucker Carlson couldn't pull off that trick because his appeal is not ideological. Another lesson of my crystal ball experiment, too. We have to underline again and again that the historical fallacy, which is to say believing that everything that's happened was fated to happen or of course it happened, The historical fallacy is just that, a fallacy, as is the weaker version of that claim, which is something like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah, or it doesn't, or it's free verse, or they claim something is a rhyme when it's clearly not a rhyme. I mean, Rod Stewart once sang, I took all those habits of yours that in the beginning were hard to accept. Fashion sales, beards, lip prints, I put down to experience. And that was counted as a rhyme. That went top 10. How'd that happen? And three, 
It's not that we live in interesting times. We live in upside down times. So after Navalny's killing, Carlson, whose dalliance with a dictator I find a lot less compelling than everyone else in the media does, I suppose. But Carlson said something approaching condemnation. But Donald Trump didn't. And it won't hurt him because the non-ideological point very much applies to him too. Navalny's death has not been, may never be fully explained. Navalny's mother was told that her son died of, quote, sudden death syndrome, which is obviously not a very clinical explanation. Sounds more like why someone would lose in a World Cup final than a Russian prison. There's so much to all of this story that even with the benefit of hindsight or crystal ball foresight, we wouldn't be possibly able to explain. But it is not that difficult to understand. Here we go. Here it is. Vladimir Putin is a ruthless autocrat, and those who excuse, admire, and aspire to autocrat status, abound in all societies, sometimes slithering about in the least expected places. And that's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. That'd be Corey Wara, the producer. Joel Patterson, senior producer. Michelle Peska is in charge of special projects for the gist. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Thanks for listening. You're in my-